I've been asked to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, most of the chapter. And as we look at the words in this writing, we see words like thief, and we see uh, day, and we see night, and we see uh, instruction to keep awake, and uh, perhaps some of you would uh, suppose that that has been accomplished last night as you stayed awake and, uh, and it was night. And I think that the writer would have us to have a spiritual perspective on this, seeing Jesus Christ as the light of the world. And when we walk with Jesus, when we live uh, in him, he and us, uh, we are living in the light. And then the promises in um, verses 9 and 10 apply to us and we can have confidence. So let's uh, look at that passage now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and uh, read it with a spiritual perspective. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, we have no need, uh, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them, verily, uh, to esteem them highly in love because of their work. But... Uh, be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit 
and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Our sermon this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5, it's verses 17 through 25, and I, I think for me this has tended to be a section that, that hasn't been well understood, and, and we kind of read over it quickly without thinking carefully about what it's saying. But to review, that the first part of this chapter has focused on instructions for the church on, on how to live in community, and, and specifically how they're to interact with the widows in the church as well as, as how to, to interact with each other in verses 1 and 2, calling for, for respect and honor to, to the different demographics in the church. But in, in talking about caring for the widows, it's instructing us particularly in how to care for a, a, a vulnerable group in the church. And, and I think it, it's fitting, perhaps, that it follows from his discussion about the widows, that, that he talks about how we should interact with the elders. And while the text doesn't necessarily make this argument, I thought of a few similarities that there exist between elders and widows. And what are those? So one is loneliness. And, and there's a certain thing that goes along with, with being a leader that, that puts you in a position of loneliness. When, when you're in the front making decisions, taking the heat for those decisions, and taking responsibility for those decisions, there, there's a bit of loneliness that occurs in that position. And, and the larger the organization, that the higher the stakes. And, and I think that is, is one of the advantages of, of a larger leadership body that, that we have here. It, it, it mitigates against some of that loneliness. Another similarity that, that exists between widows and elders is poverty. And I'm saying this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but we have this idea that, that the elders shouldn't really be too well off, and, and so we think we shouldn't pay them too much. Um, and, and I'm not really going to make an argument for or against that. I'm just saying it's a perception. And another simula similarity, like I said, is vulnerability. And there's several ways that the elders experience vulnerability particularly spiritually, but also personally and morally. And I'd like to talk today about some of the ways that our passage addresses on how we can protect against these vulnerabilities. So let, let's read the text, and then I'll make some comments as we go through. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, 
so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So there's three broad categories that we see here that, that inform the interaction between the church and the elders. And, and this is kind of a, a two-way street. Some are, are how the church relates to the elders and, and some vice versa. And, and some there, there's a kind of a mutual accountability. So I've, I've given these three areas, three labels. So the first one is charity. The second one is accountability. And the last one is purity. So the church is to provide charity or honor to the elders, which is what we see in verse 17 and 18. They're also supposed to provide accountability, which we see in 19 through 22. And finally, the elders' relationship to the church is supposed to be characterized by purity. And Jesus made two statements about following Christ that I think kind of sums up this passage and, and really is the, the, the foundation for, for these instructions. He said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so basically our interactions within the church, with each other, with the leadership, should be characterized by a commitment to loving each other and a commitment to keeping God's commandments. And I think anybody that, that preaches from this text always has to make a disclaimer at the beginning because there, there's certain ways that, that it, it kind of seems like the elder is advocating for himself. And I'm not, not intending to do that. I'm, I'm intending to convey the meaning of the text and, and hopefully give a bit of a vision for what the church could be. So let's look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And a parallel verse to this is um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, which was just read. We ask you to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And there's two words that are the same that are, that are used in both of these passages. One is the word labor, which, which is the same in both, in both passages. And the other one is the word rule that's used here in uh, 1 Timothy. In 1 Thessalonians, it's translated over, as in those who are over you in the Lord. The same word is translated manage in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. So it kind of has this idea of, of leading or guiding or advocating. And in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says they labor among you, which also gives the idea that, that it's, it's something that, that happens among us. It's not 
a position of, of a hierarchical position where they're over us in terms of absolute authority. And there's also no particular form of, of church governance that is, is specified anywhere in, in the New Testament. But this verse here in, in 1 Timothy suggests a couple things that, that support the way that we currently practice. It says, let the elders who rule well. So that it suggests that there's more than one elder, that there's, that there's not just one person running the show. It suggests that there's more than one role of the elders, because it, it talks about elders who rule as well as the, particularly those who labor in preaching and teaching. So, so different elders may have different roles. And some, but not necessarily all, of the elders labor in preaching specifically. So some people would say that this promotes the idea of, of ruling elders and, and teaching elders, which is practiced in some churches, but it's more saying that, that all of the elders are ruling elders. All of the elders have a responsibility to lead and to guide, and some do it through particular um, duties and, and some through other duties. And I think this is also the reason that, that we sought to expand the elder body here at, at church, so that certain leadership positions are held by, by someone who's been biblically qualified and who is, um, remains accountable to these qualifications. And I, I spoke before from, from chapter 3 on the importance of, of leadership being qualified. And, and I'll re reiterate that it is important that leadership is qualified because leadership does make a difference in the life of the church. And the, particularly because of the public nature of leadership and, and the example that they set, it's important that these men are above reproach. And the ability of the leader to, to lead the church in, in growth and maturity depends on the leader's own growth and maturity. And so that's why it's particularly important that we pay attention to who our leaders are and, and that we pay attention to their, their spiritual and moral character. It's not for their sake, but it's for the sake of the church. So Paul says here that the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. And we know that not all of the elders in this context were ruling well. Timothy was, was sent to this church here in Ephesus to, to straighten out some problems that existed. There were false teachers, there were unqualified teachers that were in the church. But this isn't referring to, to elders who are qualified versus elders who are not qualified. It, it's, it's distinguishing between those who rule well and, and those who are ruling. So all, everybody has to meet these qualifications. But it's, it's those who do their task with particular excellence, who, who are doing it particularly well, that should receive double honor. And this doesn't necessarily mean just twice as much as the next guy, but it's talking about a, a greater portion of honor. And so what, what does this mean to, to be an elder of excellence? Well, it's kind of like being a person of, of distinction in, in other professions. And in my line of work, it, it's in medicine. And I'm always reading doctor's notes about you know, patients that I'm seeing and, and the previous medical conditions that they've had and, and the, the workup and, and treatment plan that they've had. 
And after a while, you, you kind of figure out which doctors are at the top of their game, which ones are able to, to really sort through the mess and, and, and really hone in on, on the, the particular problem that's, that's going on. And it's not that the others are, are necessarily bad doctors, but, but if I'm ever really sick, I know which doctors I want to have working to take care of my problems. So it's not saying that those who, who rule well, um, only those who rule well, only those who do this with, with particular excellence should receive honor. But those, those who, who do it particularly well, those who are gifted possibly with a particular ability to do this with excellence should receive more honor. And perhaps that excellence is, is because of a particular gifting that they have. Or maybe it's just because of the sacrifices that, that he's willing to make that allows him to do this with this excellence. Or maybe it's because of the sacrifices that others around him are willing to make that allow him to rule with excellence. And the elders need to be respected for that. There, there's a lot of, of sacrifices that they make, and, and there's no personal gain that they receive in those sacrifices, but, but they do it for the sake of the church, and we need to respect them. But honor doesn't just mean giving them respect. It doesn't just mean thinking more of them. It includes that, but it, it also includes the idea of, of compensation, of a monetary reward. And when it says in verse 3 earlier in this chapter, to honor the widows, it, it makes it pretty clear that it's talking about more than just respecting the elderly women. It specifically talks about taking care of their physical needs and our obligation to do that. And from this context, it's also clear that he's talking about compensation because of the argument he gives in verse 18. He's quoting Deuteronomy 25.4 when he talks about the ox treading out the grain. And in those times when, when they had to thresh grain, they, they would bring these bundles of grain in onto the, the threshing floor or on a big flat rock and, and have the oxen walk over top of it maybe sometimes pulling a, a wooden sled behind them, and, and that would break the, the grain and separate it apart from the stalks. And so the law was that, that you couldn't muzzle the ox. You couldn't put, a, put something over his mouth so he couldn't eat the grain as he, was, as he was doing the work. And the second argument is that the laborer deserves his wages. This is a quote from, from Luke when Jesus sent out the 72 disciples and he told them that they could stay in the houses um, that they went to and, and eat the food from those houses because the laborer deserves his wages. And there's some disagreement among commentators is whether Paul is actually quoting the Gospel of Luke and equating it to Scripture or whether he's just repeating a well-known proverb. But it's completely likely that, that he is quoting from the Gospel of Luke because based on their estimated times that they were written, Luke would have been written and Paul probably had the opportunity to read it at this time. But the point is that elders deserve compensation for their work. And Paul makes a, a lengthy argument for this as well in 1 Corinthians 9. And he says in, in verse 7 of that chapter, "...who serves as a soldier at his own expense." Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? But somehow we've, we've gotten away from that biblical model. 
And specifically in this passage, he notes the importance of honoring those who labor in preaching and teaching. So what difference would it make in our church if we had an elder or two who were free to spend their entire time to the work of the church? What if the ones who lead in preaching and teaching had no other competing demands for time or energy to another vocation that supported themselves? And many people here say they they appreciate the biblical teaching that we have, but how much better could it be if we had a few gifted men whose sole task was to devote themselves to studying Scripture, to, to growing spiritually, and to growing in the understanding and ability to communicate that scripture and the power of of the word to our church. Preaching is important. Jesus said that the purpose of his public ministry was to preach. In Luke um, chapter 4, he had been doing some miracles in one town, and, and the people came after him and wanted him to continue doing these miracles. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus had the opportunity to to heal and to comfort and to encourage the people in that town, but he said he had to go on. His, His more important mission was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And teaching and preaching continues to be the primary task of the church, which is the body of Christ carrying out his mission until he returns. The early church grew through preaching. And we know on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to the church through the preaching of Peter and the work of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul first went to Ephesus, he says in Acts 19 that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the power was in the word of the Lord. And in his farewell speech, from Ephesus after ministering there for three years. He highlighted the importance of the word. He said, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So here we have, we have broadened our elder body. We've added more leaders to the, to the eldership team, and, and that allows more tasks to be taken on by the different elders. And there's certainly more work that could be done with more elders. But it, it does not address the need that we have to have a few spiritually gifted men whose sole calling is to devote themselves to teaching and preaching, and who can devote time to developing those gifts. But for us to get there is going to require a fundamental shift in the way that we currently think. It requires a shift in the way we think about supporting elders. It requires a shift in our thinking on the church budget and how we allocate our funds. And I think most importantly, it requires an understanding of the critical role of preaching in the life and the growth of the church and how that is the most important thing we can do to equip our people to become people of God that can minister in the community around us. And it's not for our own sake, it's not just to make us feel better, but it's for the sake of the church and for the testimony of God. Because as, as we all grow in our understanding of the word, we're all better equipped to live in ways that can impact our communities. 
So this is a, a big task for the elders, and that's why we're instructed to honor the elders. And because of the importance of this role, he, he gives further instructions on, on how to protect those who are in this position. And this is my second point, which is accountability, addressed in verses 19 through 21. Because of the, the public nature of their position, elders are subject to accusations from unhappy church members. And in order to, to protect elders from basically frivolous accusations, he, he makes this this uh, limit that says you don't even entertain a charge against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. And this is, like I said, to protect the elders. They're, the elders are supposed to be honored, and false accusations that are allowed to stick against an elder will quickly damage his reputation and his ability to serve effectively. And by the same token, passing along or receiving rumors about elders, or really about anybody, with, without, without um, substantiation, is, is taking part in the sin of gossip. And I think it's also a good practice for, for elders not to receive an accusation. If, if somebody comes to us and, and has a particular accusation of, of sin or charge to, to lay against us, it's good for that to be done in, in the presence of two or three witnesses as well. And, and this wasn't an arbitrary rule that, that Paul was, was talking about here. The Old Testament law was very clear on this, that a person could not be convicted of a crime or put to death based on the testimony of a single person. And Jesus taught a similar idea in Matthew 18 when he said, if, if a sinning brother doesn't listen to you, you take one or two more people to, to address the issue. So it's, it's important that the elders are protected, that they're protected from frivolous accusations, from, from baseless um, discrediting of their reputation. But in verse 20 it says, as for those who persist in sin. But, so if, if there is a legitimate charge, if there is something that is, is backed up by two or three witnesses, and if he persists in that sin, it must be dealt with, and it must be dealt with forcefully and with clarity. And there's, it's fairly clear that this has to be done in a public manner. Rebuke in the presence of all. And it's because, of, uh, again, of the public nature of his position, because of his position in, in leading the church and the example that he sets. If, if he damages his image by, by public sin, he risks sabotaging the mission of the church. And so a public rebuke is appropriate, and it helps the rest of the church to understand that living in sin is not acceptable. And the point, of course, is not to, to shame the elder or to punish the elder, but it's to cause the rest of the church to stand in fear, to stand in fear of the Lord, in fear of his wrath, and fear of his judgment on sin. And the goal is to experience restoration for the sinner to acknowledge his wrongs and repent. And that's a general goal of all church discipline. And a few other verses that talk about that, Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, 
lest you too be tempted. James 5 says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So even the, the catastrophe of an elder falling into sin isn't outside of, of God's redemptive power, but the potential for the other fallout related to that sin demands that it is dealt with in clarity and in truth. And he says in verse 21, he said, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And just emphasizing that, that sin has to be dealt with in, in a decisive way, and you, you can't play favorites, you can't play politics, you, you don't give one person preferential treatment because, because he's popular, because you're afraid it will hurt his feelings or someone else's feelings. You, you don't make decisions based on those things, you, you make decisions based on the truth and on the instructions of God's word. So that is the accountability that, that the elders should be held to by all of the church. And the third point that's addressed in this passage is the purity of the elders, and by extension, the, the purity of the whole church. Verse 22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So some commentators suggest that this laying on of hands is referring to restoring a fallen elder to the church and, and saying, you know, don't, don't be hasty to do that. But th there's really no other support for that idea. And the laying on of hands throughout the Old Testament is more commonly associated with the practice of ordination, this, this transferring of authority from one person to another. In the early church, it was, it was done by the apostles, but as the apostles passed on, it was done by those delegated by the apostles and eventually by um, the, the elders and leaders in the church. And so here we see Timothy is being instructed not to be hasty in laying on of hands. And it says uh, in the previous chapter, verse 4, or chapter 4, 14, it says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders lay their hands on you. And in Acts 6, it also talks about the apostles laying hands on the, the seven deacons who were chosen to look after the needs of the widows. So in, in not being hasty and in, in laying on hands, it's talking about appropriately evaluating someone before he's placed in a position of leadership. Because those that are selected to, to represent the church who are given official offices in the church, should not be selected carelessly. Again, we have the list of qualifications that have been given to Timothy as a standard by which to evaluate the men. And also, in chapter 3, he talks about testing them first before they're um, able to serve, particularly in the deacons. And the other comment he makes about keeping himself pure is not to take part in the sins of others. And this is also referring to the concern of, of having unqualified leaders and placing them in, in positions of authority. By ordaining someone that, that we know to be in sin, we're taking part in that person's sin. Second John 11 talks about taking part in a false teacher's sin by greeting or hosting him. 
And Ephesians 5 says that instead of taking part in other people's sins, we should expose their sin. And then kind of in the, in the middle of this discussion on purity, he, he injects this, this bit of medical advice to Timothy. It's not entirely random, probably related to, to the command to keep himself pure, but he, he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So we know from, from the qualifications of, of elders that an elder is not to be a drunkard. But he, he also addressed in, in chapter 4 this, this idea of, of asceticism and, and some of the, the false teachers that, that taught that by, that by um, following a certain list of commands that they, they could be more acceptable to God. And, and so I think Paul is, is basically saying here, keep yourself pure, but that doesn't mean that if you drink a little bit of wine for the sake of your stomach, that you're violating this command to keep yourself pure. And, and there's different ideas for, for what exactly this means, what, what his stomach issues were. Um, some people suggest that the water wasn't pure, and so adding a little bit of wine to it was a way to, to sanitize the water. But, but clearly the, the wine was, was some medicinal use. There was a particular... Um, medical reason that, that he was taking this, this wine. And it's the same way for, for drugs, narcotics, for example. I, I prescribe narcotics all the time for people who, who've had surgery, and, and it's appropriate that they use them to, to control their pain. But people can just as easily take those same narcotics and, and abuse them or sell them on the street. And, and thousands of people die every year from overdosing on narcotics. And I would also point out, for those who want to use this verse to justify the abuse of alcohol, that the Bible contains ample warnings about the dangers of strong drink. And particularly in Proverbs, as well as the New Testament, teaches against the sin of drunkenness. And particularly, I found it interesting, there was a video clip going around on Facebook last week of this guy, Simon Sinek, talking about the millennial generation which is basically those who are my age and younger. And, and he was speaking from a, a secular perspective, but he was describing very well what's happening in this generation of young people. He says they've grown up with instant gratification, with artificial self-esteem, and basically they're bored. Life is boring. Work has no meaning. And in adolescence, this is particularly a problem because you have bored young people who are looking for something to ease their boredom. And whatever they use, whether it's smoking or smartphones, to give them a little buzz to, to relieve their boredom becomes hardwired into their brain as a way to deal with stress. So whatever it, whenever you turn to something, it gives you a bit of a buzz. That's dopamine. There's a certain chemical in your brain that gets released. And, and that, that gets hardwired. That's the thing that makes you feel better when you're stressed. And his focus was, was particularly on, on smartphones and, and our addiction to them, which is a, a, a good discussion. But it's, it's the, the same way with, with anything else we might turn to. And I think that's particularly important to the teenagers and the young people here is that, you know, it might be fun to experiment with alcohol, but those little experiments with alcohol can be the thing that gets hardwired into your brain. To, to give you that buzz, to, to get you through a time of stress. And, and the addictive patterns 
are set so destructively, particularly at that, at that age. And, that, and that's a bit of a, a detour, but the text makes it, and so that's uh, why it feels like a rabbit trail. But back to our text. He says, if we ordain somebody without properly evaluating them, and they're found to be in sin, that we're guilty of partaking of that sin. And obviously, we can't see everybody's sins immediately on evaluating them. So he talks about this in 24 and 25. Some sins are obvious, and the repercussions are are immediate and experienced by, by everybody around them. But other sins are hidden, and that's really the nature of sin, that it is done in the darkness, as Jesus said, and even those who are close to the sinner might not know that he's living a double life. So these, these verses 24 and 5 were a bit difficult for me to, to know how they fit in until I read one commentator who said that this judgment that he's talking about in verse 24 isn't referring to the eternal judgment, but to the discerning process that you go through when you're selecting elders. So basically he's saying, if someone comes in, into the discerning process, you, some people you know it's, it's immediately apparent that there's sin in their life, and other people it isn't apparent until perhaps after an interview or after some close interactions with them. And, and by the same um, token, some people have, have good works, have, have particular qualities or giftings that, that are obvious, and, and you know about it before you even begin evaluating them, and others... Have, might have, have qualities that, that aren't immediately apparent, but in, in evaluating them, you find that, that they are, are, are gifted in a certain way. And so obviously we can't know everything about somebody's life, but it is the responsibility of the elders, along with the church, to evaluate candidates for leadership before they're ordained. And we have a process of, of doing interviews at, at several levels followed by a one-year licensing for further evaluation before the man is ordained. And it's, it's really the failure to conduct an evaluation that makes us partaker of their sins if he's in sin at the time of his ordination. And I thought we had a fairly rigorous process in place for, for evaluating someone, but I read something by John MacArthur that outlined the requirements that a candidate had to pass at his church, and it made me um, grateful that that ours isn't quite that bad. It says they have to give a summary, be able to give a summary of every book of the Bible without notes. They are given names of two to three hundred chapters in the Bible and have to explain the significance of each chapter. They have to know the major points of theology, explain and, and be able to defend them biblically with chapter and verse. Then they have to serve under another elder for a number of years to prove themselves, and then they're considered candidates for ordination. So I'm not saying that we need to be that rigorous, but we might never have an, or we might never have another ordination. But it, it really demonstrates how seriously we should take the evaluation process and, and how they do it in order to protect the purity of the church. So we, we've covered these three areas, charity, accountability, and purity. And these are all areas that are demanded in the life of the church. But what is your attitude towards the church? 
Do you have a high regard for the mission of the church and for the duties of the elders? Or is the church just a social activity you're involved in? What's your concern for the purity of the church? Have you participated in another person's sins by covering up instead of addressing known areas of sin? Have you been accountable to others? That the purity and testimony of the church depends on the whole church, and the elders carry the load of responsibility in terms of the leadership, but consider the contribution you make. And it's as we labor together in the church, we will bring glory to God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we thank you for this passage in which you reveal to us your call for the purity of the church. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and grace as we seek to grow according to your plan and help this church to be a witness to your power and goodness in our lives and in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.